The first time I visited South India, I was privileged to witness two very special events, very important. Both were entirely unexpected. First, in a, a huge Hindu temple, our tour group passed a small gathering. And our guide stopped and told us in a stage whisper to watch what was happening. A young woman faced a young man just a few feet apart. They were silent and visibly very nervous. Two other couples, older parents, stood watching, smiling, and two other young people looked on, also very happy. One of them approached our guide. They chatted in Tamil, and then he turned to us and spoke to us in English. His face was lit up with joy. The girl at the center of it all was his sister, and she was meeting her husband-to-be for the very first time. Now, to meet in that temple was auspicious. Meenakshi Temple was built to celebrate a divine marriage, and, and it was right and proper for the families to gather there. It meant good luck for the wedding. Now, we may not think that such things happen in the 21st century, but it was natural, it was part of life for these two families, at least, because after all, two families get married on a wedding day. And then a week later, I arrived in another city, and the man who met me at the train station told my traveling companion and me that we had been invited to a wedding that evening. It didn't seem we had any choice but to go. And the wedding was held in a Lutheran church. Our host ushered us in, and we all sat with the groom's parents. I sat beside the, the, the groom's grandmother. She couldn't speak a word of English to me, but she was so honored that I was there, and she was so happy for the day. The event proceeded exactly as a traditional wedding in Canada or England would proceed. Most of it was in Tamil, except for the very traditional wedding hymns. I think we sang, O Perfect Love, and the voice that breathed o'er Eden. The bride and groom were dressed as they would have dressed for a very traditional wedding here. I didn't go to the reception. I was too tired from my traveling day. But I got a taste, several tastes, of wedding receptions in India that night and through the week because the church residence where I was staying was attached to a wedding hall, which was a good source of revenue for the church's lay education programs. So when they didn't have students in the residence, it was filled with wedding guests who would come in by the busload from all over the region. There may have been a hundred or a few dozen people at the ceremony, at the wedding itself, at least 300 would be at the reception. But I did meet the couple who were married on that Friday night again, on Sunday morning in the same church. They were there in all their wedding finery at the door, greeting everyone as they came in. They were the first at the rail for communion and then went behind to help the clergy serve communion. They were applauded during the service. So two very different approaches to marriage, one deeply rooted in Hindu culture, the other as much a reflection of colonization as Christianity, but with something added that was made in India. 
It's pretty hard for us to step into the story from John chapter 2 about a wedding celebration, a first century Galilean wedding. The events that lead up to this wedding are a lot like the ritual I saw in that temple. Now, we, we don't get to see the negotiations, parent to parent, the bargaining that comes before the betrothal. Cana is not a very big town. Chances are the families are well acquainted. Bride and groom probably first met in childhood. And that's prob there's probably no religious ceremony that we would recognize, just a public announcement and a very public procession from the bride's family home to the groom's. Bride and groom are always surrounded by family, and they're all surrounded by neighbors from near and far. And then the party gets started. An open party with an open bar that goes on for up to six days. Six days. An Indian wedding reception times six. It takes time to celebrate so much. Deepening the ties between families, strengthening the whole community, guaranteeing another generation, maintaining the population, supporting the local economy, but perhaps most important of all, upholding and enhancing the honor of two families. So if the wine runs out before the party's supposed to end, it doesn't just spoil the party, it shames the groom's family in the eyes of the whole community. And Mary knows all about family honor and community shame, and she's a good mother, and I imagine she hopes that at least one of her sons will get married someday. But she knows her son Jesus can do something about this problem that has arisen. But it's still a strange request to make of the Messiah. Or is it? It's not trivial. It's a matter of concern for the whole community. But it's also a setup. Whether Mary knows it or not, and, and I think she may actually know, it's a setup for a sign. And that's the word John uses for what others call miracles a sign. Jesus says it's not yet time for a sign. Mary disagrees. Now, each of the four Gospels begins with a public event or events that tell us how each author understands Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus heals the sick wherever he goes. And then he stops and preaches his most famous sermon. So Jesus is the one who fulfills the prophet's hopes. He brings a new order and a new law. In Mark, Jesus goes public with an exorcism. Jesus is the one who will fight and defeat all the powers that keep God's people captive. In Luke, Jesus starts off teaching, and he preaches in his hometown and says very clearly what he is about. And he also runs into real conflict with religious people for the first time. Jesus is God's anointed servant, the messenger his people have been waiting for, just not the one they expect. And in John, it begins with such high theology and continues to explore the deeper meaning of everything Jesus says and does. The first thing Jesus does in public 
is go to a wedding with his first disciples, with his mother, among his own people. While they're celebrating one of life's greatest joys, Jesus takes the best they can imagine and makes even more of it. Jesus is the one who comes into the world, John says, comes as one of us to transform the world and us and to take us beyond anything we would dare to imagine. John says in his first chapter, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, blessing after blessing. When all the good wine's gone, the best comes in abundance. Yes, somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of it, actually. John adds layers of meaning, especially numbers, six stone jars, stone jars holding water that is kept as clean as possible for religious purposes, six big stone jars that you might see in the temple, not in a private home. This is about abundance. It's about how something good can be transformed into something so much more life-giving. And this, Jesus' first sign, points to everything else Jesus says and does in John's Gospel. Now, those of us here today who have been married in a church were probably told during the service that marriage is a holy estate, that Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee or some such words, which is to say, Jesus went to a wedding and worked a miracle there, so he thinks marriage is one of the best things in the world, and so should we. And following Jesus together can make a marriage better. It can make any relationship more than the sum of its parts. But this story is about much more than marriage or weddings or receptions. Over 40 years ago, a Canadian Christian artist, Willis Wheatley, drew an image of Jesus for a church publication. It's a portrait of Jesus with his head thrown back, his face is alive, his mouth is wide open, he's laughing. The artist called it Jesus the Liberator, but most who've seen it call it the Laughing Christ. I thought of showing it to you on the screens, but it has been pirated, stolen so many times, we need to honor the artist's rights. But if you want, you can Google the Laughing Christ. But for years after that picture was first printed, Christians argued about it. Some raged and tore it up and called it blasphemy. Blasphemy. Or at least disrespect. To suggest Jesus might actually enjoy himself and enjoy what we enjoy. So how do you suppose Jesus looks? How do you suppose Jesus behaves at that wedding, at least until his mother breaks his chill? Do we imagine Jesus like a bachelor at a country dance who's standing up against the wall like this, afraid anyone will approach him? Or does Jesus share in the laughter and the dancing, even the drinking? After all, they have to drink wine. They can't get clean water. But it's probably new, fresh wine, kind of sour and not with the very high alcohol content. But over a six-day celebration of constant drinking, you can imagine 
the state a lot of the people were in. Every time we gather, can we imagine Jesus with us, enjoying the fellowship, wanting to be with us, sharing in laughter and tears? The kingdom of God, I believe, exists in laughter. Do we believe Jesus laughs with us? We believe he weeps with us. We're told that he grieves with us and he's present when we are sad and when we are frightened and when we are needy. But can we imagine Jesus present to us, with us, when we're happy? One of the chief concerns of John's gospel is how we can imagine and remember and experience the risen Christ's presence among us. It's a big concern in John's Gospel, and it starts with this story about a wedding. You know, we count on Jesus' ability to make water into wine all the time. We offer what we have to give. We offer our best efforts. Our reading from 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us that we all have gifts from God to offer back to God in service for the good of all as part of the body of Christ. But more often than not, we hold back because we think we and what we have to share couldn't be enough. Just water. Ordinary water. Who am I? Don't hold back. Anything we offer is worthy. Everything we contribute, money, talents, time, ideas, prayers, it all adds up to become much, much more than the sum of the parts. I prepared this sermon at the end of a week that was full of far too many meetings, but do you know, we Presbyterians rely on Jesus to make water into wine all the time even if we like to use grape juice to represent that wine. We believe when we come together as a congregation, a session, a presbytery, and so on, even, yes, even a committee, to make decisions for the good of the church and the world, we become more than the sum of the parts. We discern God's will, and then we go out and do it. And believe it or not, it's possible to leave a meeting as I did on Thursday night at quarter after 10, feeling blessed and enthusiastic. You see, when that happens, the water we have offered around the circle, around the table, insights, questions, and good humor, laughter and prayer, is turned into new wine. And we know for sure we are the church. Drops of water gather together and becomes gallons of wine good wine. You know, on Sundays like this, when someone inevitably comes up to me and said, it must be discouraging to prepare a sermon for so few people on a day like this. And my usual answer is, we are who we are. We are church. And we are not water, even if we may be few. We are filled with good wine to go out and serve in response to God's word. The last words of the story say that Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
Did they believe because Jesus' miracle-working power amazed them, overwhelmed them, frightened them? John says Jesus revealed his glory. He says that a lot. That means they got a glimpse of who Jesus really is. Not so much through his power, but through his purpose. As John tells us, Jesus says later, I have come so that we may have life, abundant life. Not wealthy life, not successful life, not powerful life, but life full and overflowing with love, compassion, assurance, and joy. And it's a life to be enjoyed at every opportunity, every opportunity, including wedding receptions, burns suppers, and church anniversaries. Amen. Thanks be to God.